Hello, this is Edward Vickers here. This week for the Asian Education Podcast, we're going to do something slightly different. I'm traveling in Sri Lanka and Yoko and Gairam Pame are otherwise engaged. So rather than post a new, an original interview of our own, what I thought we would do is introduce uh, another podcast that I've recently been involved in, uh, and that's the War Heritage Podcast, uh, produced by Tim Winter, who's now at the Asia Research Institute of National University of Singapore. Uh, and uh, Tim and I and Mark Frost, uh, the coordinator of the WarMap Network, Daniel Schumacher and Toya Horman, uh, about a year ago, we put together this podcast looking at the politics of uh, intangible heritage in Southeast Asia related to uh, war uh, and in particular to the uh, sort of memory and heritage of World War II. And I was responsible for putting together two episodes of that podcast, which have a significant, significant um, bearing on education. Uh, so what I'm going to do this week is rebroadcast those episodes and also encourage you to uh, go to the website of the War Heritage Podcast and check out the entire series, uh, which is uh, fascinating uh, and uh, features some nice uh, musical and uh, sound effects and uh, uh, provided courtesy of um, uh, Toy Horman's wonderful technical uh, assistance uh, and the funding that was provided for that podcast series by uh, UNESCO's Jakarta office. So the, uh, the two episodes of that uh, podcast series that I'm going to uh, rebroadcast for you uh, this time as our episode 11, effectively, are uh, an episode of the War Heritage podcast on the difficulties of conflict-related intangible heritage uh, and another episode on what we've called vectors of intangible cultural heritage. Uh, and that one in particular deals with the role of education in transmitting or reshaping uh, memories, practices and uh, traditions related to the heritage of conflict uh, um, and particularly in Southeast Asia. Uh, and among the uh, people I was lucky enough to interview for that episode and indeed for the, for the, for the previous one on the difficulties of conflict-related intangible heritage uh, was uh, Kirsty Sword Guzmao uh, formerly the, um, the the head of the National Commission for UNESCO in Timor-Leste, uh, Helen Ting uh, uh, from Malaysia, uh, and Mark Maka, uh, who at that point was still based in the Philippines. Uh, so um, in the episode on the vectors of intangible cultural heritage, uh, we're looking, as I said, at education, but also more broadly at the role of language uh, as a form of uh, what you might call superordinate intangible cultural heritage. Um, and in the episode on the difficulties of conflict-related intangible heritage, 
uh, we're looking at um, uh, or we're questioning uh, whether or, or to what extent heritage should be regarded as intrinsically positive and worthy of preservation uh, or uh, whether in some cases uh, difficult or controversial or traumatic heritage um, might be better forgotten or I hesitate to use the word suppressed uh, but, but uh, allowed to fade uh, from popular consciousness. Uh, so in that episode, we're discussing, you know, how far or whether uh, remembering heritage of uh, traumatic conflict um, may either on the one hand help to um, warn us of the or, or heighten our awareness of the factors that contribute to causing conflict or whether it may in fact maintain uh, the, the, the resentments and the sort of vendettas, intercommunal uh, vendettas that um, uh, make conflict more likely to reoccur. So I encourage you to um, listen to these episodes that we're rebroadcasting this week. And as I said, also to go to the website of the War Heritage Podcast and uh, listen to the other episodes that are available there. Thank you very much. The conventional understanding of intangible cultural heritage as promoted by UNESCO has tended to focus on the exotic, the traditional and the artistic, as uh, Bill Logan and Keir Reeves put it in their writing on difficult heritage. But culture isn't confined to the exotic or attractive aspects of human activity. It potentially encompasses everything, including what we might regard as ugly or harmful practices. Logan and Reeves point out, for example, that the Ku Klux Klan could be regarded as a cultural manifestation. For an American white supremacist, Ku Klux Klan traditions might seem to qualify as intangible cultural heritage that deserves to be protected. So discussing difficult heritage involves considering how past atrocities are commemorated, interpreted or denied, and what this means for contemporary identities. But one problem we face in discussing difficult heritage is in agreeing on what counts as an atrocity in the first place. The Ku Klux Klan example invoked by Logan and Rees reminds us not just of how one person's precious intangible cultural heritage can be another's evil cult, but of how cultural traditions themselves can be intentionally manipulated to divide people, to shore up our identity by demonizing or dehumanizing those deemed not to belong. This use or abuse of culture is certainly not specific to East or Southeast Asia, but it is rife across the region. At the most basic level, it's visible in the way that nationalism is intertwined with culture and culture is attached to race. In fact, we can make a strong case for seeing nationalism itself, its stories, myths, ceremonies and rituals as a superordinate form of intangible cultural heritage, shaping or distorting mainstream ideas about culture, heritage and identity. And as we'll discuss in episode nine, much the same can also be said of language. 
in earlier episodes, we've drawn comparisons with China, and China certainly exemplifies the subordination of heritage and tradition to the purposes of state legitimation. Communist Party propaganda now portrays the regime as the embodiment or custodian of 5,000 years of outstanding traditional Chinese culture, while textbooks exhort children to treasure China's marvellous traditional festivals while shunning Western festivals such as Christmas and Halloween. In China today, the notion of tradition is harnessed to a patriotic education campaign that also involves constructing new traditions around the legacy of war, in particular the patriotic war of resistance against Japanese aggression. In fact, as I record this in mid-December 2021, China has just marked Nanjing Massacre Memorial Day, an annual day of commemoration that was inaugurated as recently as 2014. In their treatment of tradition, as in much else, China's communist rulers have taken much inspiration from a Southeast Asian exemplar, Singapore. The Singaporean statesman Li Kuan Yew was a guest of honour at a 1995 conference in Beijing, honouring the 2,554th anniversary of the death of Confucius, where he gave a speech attributing Singapore's success to Confucian values and urged China to learn from its example. In Li Kuan Yew's Singapore, Confucianism was repackaged as multicultural Asian values to legitimate the local brand of authoritarian nationalism. Here is Lee talking about the differences between Chinese and Western values. Well, the West assumes that unless you are democratic like them, you have elections every few years and change the president or change the prime minister and the whole parliament, <clears throat> then you cannot make progress. You're always below par, subnormal, subideals. Uh, that's their preconceived view of the world. That China never had such a tradition. That China is a vast country of 1.3 billion people. Such efforts to reappropriate and repurpose cultural heritage to legitimate authoritarian regimes extend far beyond Singapore. The implications of this often include the marginalization or exclusion of ethnic or religious minorities. Across Asia, exclusionary chauvinistic ethno-nationalism has often been justified and turbocharged by anti-Westernism. One example of this is the brand of Malaysian nationalism championed in the 1980s and 1990s by Mahathir Mohamad, who at one point teamed up with the Japanese ultra-nationalist politician and writer Ishihara Shintaro to publish a volume entitled the Asia that can say no. No, that is, to the West. On one level, this is understandable given the enduring legacy of colonialism across Southeast Asia. But when we consider what this means for culture, heritage and identity, it's important to consider whose stories, whose traditions, whose identities are marginalised or obscured. And this in turn leads us to consider in particular the treatment of women. Whether Islamist, Neo-Confucian or Leninist, nationalist ideologies 
across Southeast Asia and beyond, not least in Ishihara's native Japan, have typically been intensely patriarchal. The subjugation, exploitation, marginalization, and even abuse of women have typically been concomitants of conservative neo-traditionalist nationalism. In many societies in Asia and beyond, we frequently observe an intimate connection between nationalism, patriarchy, and misogyny. In Northeast Asia, campaigning over the issue of comfort women, women trafficked for sex by the Japanese military during World War II, has served as a major focus or catalyst for feminist activism since the 1990s. This is especially true in South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan itself. In South Korea, the movement campaigning on behalf of former comfort women has evolved into a powerful subculture all of its own, with symbols, rituals, and an institutional infrastructure. In some ways, this phenomenon has become disturbingly intertwined with a rather xenophobic strain of Korean nationalism. But for many activists, it is, at least in part, a means of challenging the profoundly chauvinistic and patriarchal cultural norms that underpin the continuing oppression and marginalization of women in Korean society today. It took me 50 years before I could tell the story you're about to hear, because for 50 years I lived with a terrible shame, a feeling of being different, of being dirty, of being soiled because of what the Japanese did to me during the war. That was the Dutch victim of the comfort women system, Jan Ruff O'Hearn, speaking in 2004 about her experiences in the occupied Dutch East Indies during World War II, what's now Indonesia. The comfort women phenomenon was widespread across wartime Southeast Asia, with thousands of women trafficked into Japanese military brothels. But when we look at Southeast Asia, we find very little sustained activism on behalf of former comfort women there. And this is an absence that can be explained with reference to the cultural, social and political context across the region. The weakness of civil society, the related weakness of the feminist movement, as well as geopolitical factors. In 2017, we in the WARMAC network gained an insight into this when we were organizing an international conference on the heritage of war in collaboration with an institution in Singapore. We invited a prominent Chinese expert on the comfort women issue to deliver a keynote address, but the invitation was vetoed by the Singaporeans. I discussed this and other issues related to the curious absence of any significant movement on behalf of comfort women in Southeast Asia with Griselda Molmans, a Dutch writer and campaigner who has researched this issue. This was not a conference specifically on comfort women. It was a conference on, you know, the politics of war-related heritage in East Asia. But, you know, given how big an issue the comfort women are in that context and the growth of movements to commemorate them, not just to sort of seek justice for them, but, you know, to set up museums and memorials, it seemed to make sense to get Su Jiliang over, but they vetoed it. Because 
they in in and this is where geopolitics comes in they uh, in singapore the government is always very sensitive about its relationship with china and how that is perceived because singapore is very close to china it's also quite close to japan and they didn't want to be seen in particular by japan as providing a platform to a chinese critic wow just considering how many of thousands of chinese young women were abused in singapore now that is that is some sort of statement yeah but what does that say about the values of the state and the position of women in that society well it says it all and it's, and it, it tells you something about the um, about the power that that japan wields over singapore yeah because i mean if if anywhere i i think in setting apart from the philippines perhaps if, if anywhere else in southeast asia was going to provide a platform for former comfort women to you know come forward or or be commemorated you would have thought it might be singapore oh my cards were on singapore from from day one, and sadly that never materialized so pressure on governments in southeast asia from the japanese authorities has often been effective Local elites often see suppressing local feminists as a small price to pay for harmonious relations with Japan, which in turn are important for balancing the growing regional dominance of China. But also, when the opportunity has arisen for former comfort women in Southeast Asia to come forward and receive recognition and compensation, the process has in some instances been hijacked or distorted by male elites as Griselda Molmans explains it is because um say in Indonesian culture uh, the the honor shame principle is is very dominant so when you when i had the chance to talk to a few women and i i read a lot of interviews that have been published by by other researchers what is what is clear that once you speak out you're ostracized by your own society by your own family by your own kampong your little village or even the city where you live so that's what happened that's the that's the main um fear that 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 gripped these women and they only spoke out later on when the asia women fund was um was organized and it became clear that if they they registered for for this particular fund they would be eligible for some some sort of compensation so in a very cynical way it was more money driven or it, it's not so much money driven but it was the need for money because most of these women uh, were so poor that they had to um, really survive all these years after the war so the need for money that, that many of these very impoverished women experienced and of course most former comfort women across asia did tend to be from very poor backgrounds they came from poverty and they returned to in many cases even worse poverty after the war so you're saying that that their their poverty and the availability of this funding through the asian women's fund sort of persuaded some to overcome the fear of ostracism that had hitherto prevented them from coming forward but that this didn't really translate into any self-sustaining movement on behalf of comfort women no the only the only um activists if you if you will were researchers and were young women who were concerned about the well-being of all these 
victims. But the more women died um, and the more this whole movement kind of moved away or slid away and, and there's there's nothing else. What also is, is important to know that nobody, none of these comfort women who were registered, officially registered for the Asia Women's Fund were paid out. So they were, I guess they were cheated uh, on for, for say the, the second or the third time in their lives. So they lost all confidence. So they came, they came forward to claim compensation and, and, and put themselves out there and then didn't actually get any compensation? No, because the money was paid out directly to the Indonesian government. And on that level, it was decided that the money should be used to build um, special homes for, for aging people, for aging women. But the last time I checked, when I called, or not, when I checked with a few of my colleagues in Indonesia, they told me that only two of these um, uh, homes were, were, were built and they were not, not even specifically used or uh, uh, or build for for former comfort women. So, as you know, corruption is still rampant in Indonesia, and this is another one of the many examples that things didn't go right with with official funding. That's that's very interesting. I mean, in in, in many societies across Asia, and I think this is certainly true in Korea and Japan and Taiwan. I think you you find a, a, an intersection between um, movements to advocate on behalf of comfort women and increasingly as comfort women pass away to commemorate them uh, through museums uh, and also through you know commemorative rituals an intersection between all of that and a sort of wider feminist movement that, that to some extent is also challenging patriarchal institutions culture norms in those societies. Now, you mentioned that in the case of Indonesia, there was some involvement by young female scholars in trying to encourage these elderly former comfort women to come forward. Was that a sort of sign of some attempt at least to uh, relate the experience of the comfort women to a a broader feminist movement in Indonesia, even though, as you seem to suggest, it came to nothing. Well, the cynical thing is that these, uh, the, the women who were willing to finally speak out were urged on by either relatives or so-called Lura, which are um, the, um, the heads of certain districts in, in towns. And um, so it wasn't even, about, even uh, encouraged by, by young scholars. It was, it was, purely money-driven. And that's the painful aspect of it. So, so the male village head or the male sort of community leaders would say, we've heard that this money is available. You know, you grandma, you know, come on, go and get it on behalf of the village or on behalf of the community. And there was such a rush. What I understand is that they didn't even check whether uh, whether one of these elder women were actually victims or there was a lot of fraud in uh, connected to it but let's say at you know at the end of the day nobody got any form of compensation and it's of course it's shameful if you exploit women this way i'm considering what they've gone uh, what they went through in, in in wartime in a region where patriarchal nationalism is so prevalent 
Activist feminism is widely seen as threatening to a narrative that portrays women as the chaste embodiment of national purity. But this fetishization of feminine purity jars with the persistence of a rampant commercial sex industry across much of the region. It could be argued that this vast and very ancient culture of commercial sex itself represents a form of intangible cultural heritage. Indeed, some right-wingers in Japan make precisely this point, arguing that prostitution was only outlawed in post-war Japan due to the interference of culturally insensitive Americans. But from a feminist perspective, the legacy of this sort of traditional thinking amongst patriarchal elites constitutes a variant of dark intangible cultural heritage that deserves to be swiftly jettisoned. The case of comfort women activism, or the lack of it across most of Southeast Asia, shows that what is not commemorated is often as important or telling as what is. This is also evident in rituals, practices and traditions that arise in connection with key sites connected with the memory of conflict or oppression. For example, prisons have in recent years become important features of the heritage landscape in many Asian societies. In a previous episode, we discussed the case of Twol Sleng Prison in Phnom Penh, site of horrendous Khmer Rouge atrocities in the 1970s. Hyung Kyung Lee is a Korean scholar who has researched the conversion of colonial prisons in Northeast Asia into heritage sites. She has analysed the case of Sodaimon Prison in central Seoul, which has become something of a shrine to leaders of Korea's independence movement imprisoned there by the Japanese colonial regime before 1945. Here is a translated excerpt from the diary of a female inmate, Yu Guan Sun. I can't remember how many Japanese men were beating me up before they chucked me in a tiny cell to live with 24 other inmates. There is not enough space to even sit down. Our legs were sweating. So I had an idea. I got us to walk in circles singing Arirang. Sodaimon Prison has become a key focal point for rituals or ceremonies commemorating these martyrs to the cause of Korean nationhood. But the prison continued in operation long after 1945 and was used to incarcerate many opponents of South Korea's oppressive military regime. Those victims of oppression perpetrated by Koreans are remembered rather differently from the opponents of Japanese colonial rule, a point I put to Dr. Lee. The rituals and commemoration and celebration events are rather focused on the colonial period rather than post-colonial period. Because it's like in South Korea, we don't have any harmonious consensus to understand the post-colonial period. So some people doesn't accept that that is the uh, political prisoners, some, some right, left-wing side perceive them like kinds of the democratic, pro-democratic fighters towards the over the uh, military dictatorship. But some of the right-wing perceive them, they are not uh, like a, they are anti, like a governmental, like a people. So they have a, still have a, some certain conflicts. Therefore, it's a bit hard to find out the kinds of stories. And interestingly, 
North Korea, the, those who are the independent activists during the colonial period, but they moved to North Korea right after the liberation. Uh, the North Korean like independent activists' stories are a bit silenced in Sodeman prison because of the like ideological conflict between North and South Korea. So yeah, unfortunately, two main sides of the stories are pretty much not narrated strongly as much as the yeah South Korean independent activists during the colonial period. So harmony is generated through in in Korea through remembering the colonial period. Everyone can agree that we hate the Japanese, basically. But when it comes to actions perpetrated by Koreans against other Koreans, that's where the difficulties arise. That is another story. Yeah, indeed. So it's a lot easier in the official, uh, in the in the establishment of the official narrative in South Korea. It might be easier to make the anti-colonialism and also anti-communism. So it's it's like in the beginning of the establishment of the Republic of Korea uh, in the 50, in the 1950s and in the 1960s, it is a lot easier to uh, put Japan as the national foe, and the North Korea is also is very difficult, to, like an anti antagonist, something like that. So yeah, that is a kind of very difficult things. Often then. The politics of post-colonial nationalism tend to accord the commemoration of certain atrocities a sort of ritualized or totemic status, while other difficult memories are marginalized or forgotten. I discussed the case of another prison-turned-museum, this time in East Timor, with Kirsty Sword Guzmao, former head of the Timorese National Commission for UNESCO. So there's a Museum of a Resistance um, in Dili, which has documented um, in a variety of different forms, uh, you know, the, the stories of, of suffering and of loss and of, of sacrifice and of heroism and bravery. There's also the, the Centro Nacional Chega, which is the Museum of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it is housed in an old prison, an Indonesian prison, where many Timorese pro-independence supporters and activists were, were imprisoned and tortured. So a very significant site. So it's been transformed into a really very moving, um, wonderful museum. Um, it's developed a range of educational materials for school students as well as, you know, um, international and local visitors. I think, you know, stories of the resistance period have been transmitted through song, through through storytelling. Um, and that's been really important, I think, in passing on, you know, a history that is little known to the current generation who haven't experienced that that conflict. And, you know, it's a very it's a very important part of the story of of modern day modern day timor so i guess really important to for those stories to be to be shared i guess there's always been a little bit of a tension with the notion of of reconciliation and moving forward and 
and enjoying the best possible relations with um, with Indonesia um, because, of course, it does bring to the surface a lot of very bitter, um, unhappy memories. And those memories are still quite fresh for a lot of people. Yes. And there's a lot of, you know, untreated trauma, I think, within Timorese um, society, but there's also an amazing propensity for for forgiveness and um, reconciliation. I mean, I think the Timorese have a tremendous political maturity, you know, in being able to distinguish between the acts of a, of a di- dictatorial regime and ordinary people. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, of Indonesians have lived lived in um in Timor over the years, and there's been very little um, violence or anger or resentment directed at them. Um, and you, you, I mean, you would think that there would be more, given you know just uh, the the terrific um, tremendous atrocities that people experienced. Yeah. So you you mentioned uh, one of these um, museums, one of these major museums that relates to sort of the, the, the legacy of, of conflict in, in East Timor is the Museum of Truth and Re- Reconciliation, which is housed in a former Indonesian prison. And that actually also echoes for me Taiwan, where in, in recent years the, the, a major museum has been established uh, I think it's called the National Museum of Human Rights or something. And that is, is spread across two sites, one in Taipei and one on a remote island down in the south, off the southeast coast of Taiwan. And these are both former prisons. And they're both former um, Guomindang prisons or prisons used by the, the, um, the Guomindang regime during the period of martial law. But one of those prisons actually started existence as a Japanese colonial prison. But when you visit that site, it's the, the exhibition is all about the terrible things that happened there under the Guomindang. And there is, well, there's a mention that the prison was already there under the Japanese, but there's nothing about who was in prison there or why or you know what happened there or whether this was or how this was implicated in any sort of you know oppression visited upon Taiwanese by the Japanese, nothing. I wonder to what extent the the story in 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 Timor Leste today is 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 somewhat similar to that. You know, there's a lot of focus on uh, the Indonesian uh, uh, oppression, but I understand again from just reading Trina Supit's book, it's quite a lot of oppression conducted by the Portuguese in association with their sort of civilizing mission in the 20th century. Does that feature at all in these sorts of sites? Not not so much. And I guess, you know, what's most fresh in people's memories is, you know, the 24-year period of um, Indonesian colonial rule. And I think there is that nostalgia that I mentioned earlier that still really colours the views of many Timorese about um, the period of Portuguese colonial rule. And, you know, not a lot of has been written about that period from a Timorese perspective. It's all written by Portuguese. So, you know, I, I think one of the huge challenges at the moment in Timor is actually 
developing um, more Timorese scholars and researchers who are prepared to actually delve into those periods of history and look at them more um, from an Indigenous perspective. Um, and, you know, I think until that happens, you know, it, it will still be it will still be glossed over and and looked on you know in a relatively positive light from those who um in leadership i guess you could say uh, people like Shanana Guzman who were educated by the portuguese whose whose families were assimilados and you know who now make up the now make up the the Timorese elite really i mean they the beneficiaries of that re- regime so they're kind of not likely to be you know looking back on that period of history in a particularly negative light so i think a more well-rounded kind of view of that history is only going to come probably from a younger generation of leaders and and scholars who are coming at it a little bit more independently as i noted in that exchange with kirsty sorg guzmao East Timor is not the only East Asian society where memories of a former colonial power are filtered through a a legacy of more recent oppression. Sometimes this manifests itself in surprising and complex ways. What may look to some like post-colonial nostalgia may have multiple meanings for different actors. I discussed one instance of this with the Taiwanese scholar Huang Shumei, this time involving an old colonial era Shinto Shrine in southern Taiwan. I understand there's a very interesting case in Taiwan of a former Shinto shrine from the Japanese colonial period that has been maintained by an indigenous group, but has been the subject of more recent influence by right-wing Japanese agents with their own agenda. It'd be great if you could tell us a bit about that. In Taiwan? There is an easy agreement upon how to remember the colonial past under the Japanese colonization. Um, and one of the most um, contested cases um, I want to talk about is a shrine recently rebuilt in indigenous lands um, under the sponsorship by a Japanese Shinto priest who claimed that he wanted to um, show gratitude to the Taiwanese society, um, especially referencing uh, a donation made by us to after the March 11 earthquake and tsunami. Um, the shrine is rebuilt uh, and uh, for the past three years, uh, there have been um, ceremonies on New Year's. The priests will be here um um conducting um the, the ritual practices um a lot of tourists will come um and it actually attracts a lot of criticism um on how 
the indigenous community forgets uh, all the suffering uh, the Japanese brought to uh, Taiwan. Um, however, the community actually view this um, initiative quite differently. They um, did not necessarily see the restoration of a shrine as a religious project, um, maybe to the Japanese side, but to them, uh, this is a meaningful project because uh, it's a site where they can remember their family before they were forcibly brought to uh, the Pacific War. Um, and, and most of them um, had never made it back to Taiwan. Um, so um, a lot of indigenous communities, they, um, they do not necessarily agree with all the ritual practices uh, brought by the Japanese priests, but they um, they kind of uh, um, they manage to be more flexible with that uh, for themselves to uh, sustain their own memories. So for the indigenous community, they see it as a way to gain resources and to gain attention. That too. Yeah, part of the community uh, who are thinking about community development, cultural tourism, who also uh, see this kind of uh, initiative as a, as a plus. Um, but uh, to the elderly, to, to those who, um, who were born before the war, um, they did uh, like, they associated this much more with their own personal uh, memories. Um, yeah, but of course, uh, this case especially attracted um, um, criticism uh, from the uh, nationalist party. That, that's the Kuomintang, so the, the, the sort of Chinese nationalist party. Exactly, I, exactly. And, and it's really, it's complicated because in a way it's fair comment because the Japanese priest um, indeed is associated with um, some right-wing political camp in Japan. Um, um, part of uh, them are actually from the um, association of the Friends of Li Denghui in Japan. So um, it's a small shrine. It's a really small shrine. Um, um, it, it costs about uh, 80,000 US dollars to rebuild it. Um, but behind the scene, um, it's a really, um, it, it's serious contestation over history and contemporary politics. In Taiwan, this sort of attempt to appropriate conflict heritage to serve contemporary political agendas often sparks fierce public debate. But a few hundred miles to the south in the northern Philippines, we see similar attempts by Japanese rightists to export their commemorative practices and the imperialist nostalgia associated with them. In the Philippines, though, this has tended to arouse far less public controversy or critique. I discussed with the Filipino scholar Mark Macker the case of a memorial in northwestern Luton to Japanese kamikaze pilots. And um, I did I did some more research and I, I found that it was um, kind of instigated or started by one individual, very influential one. And of course, there was some uh, a lot of uh, criticism against him. 
uh, from from the community at large, not necessarily from organized groups, but of course there are some academics, you know, um, um, gave their opinion, you know, not necessarily attacking him, but kind of of highlighting to him the difference between, you know, what he saw as noble, you know, if, because the guy who started all this movement, it's, fortunately, I would have to say it, it's kind of become a small movement now because I didn't realize that when he started it in, 19, in the 1970s, it started at his home. So his home has become, you know, it converted into a museum for the kamikazes. I haven't been there and I, 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 I might visit you know, uh, soon. And the one that I visited was in a more public place, you know, the former airfield where supposedly the first kamikazes, you know, ever uh, flew, you know, and, and you know, uh, and, and that's what he was highlighting. And lo and behold, the uh, local t tourism board, the municipal tourism board um, kind of adopted that. So kind of embraced that that um perspective as well uh of course with all the you know with all the um reasoning about you know we are not really um glorifying war or the atrocities of the japanese it's kind of a it's a way of reminding us that you know atrocity of war but the the, the irony there is they are highlighting what they saw as noble you know the noble act and the supreme sacrifice of the kamikaze in the case of that kamikaze memorial in central Luzon that you're talking about, I mean, what's happening there is really that local actors are exploiting the commemorative practices of Japanese right-wingers for tourism purposes. They come in bus loads. And, and, and people in the community, when, they, when, when you interview them, they will tell you that they really come in busloads and they perform the ritual for the, for the dead, for the Japanese dead. So they bring sake, so, you know, they, they do their prayers. You know, it's interesting, you know, if, 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 somebody, if someone has to do, you know, to map out these private memorials and private shrines of Japanese dead, there's so many. And, 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 and there, there's one where it's in a more private lot but um the 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 municipal government i can i think somewhere in bulacan wants to transform it into uh, how do you say it? it's kind of um in a more to draw more tourists yeah so they, they are marketing themselves as an offshore venue for japanese right-wing commemorative practices but but the filipinos don't see that I mean, in interestingly, you know, um, they just saw the Japanese as their ordinary tourists. I mean, they don't really, they don't see the symbolisms that goes to all these pil pilgrimages, you know. I don't think even the ones that host them uh, understand the nuances. The difficulties of conflict-related heritage across Southeast Asia in all its forms, whether tangible or intangible, are thus often buried, ignored, or very selectively handled. In the Philippines, this is in part because of the lure of the foreign tourist dollar, but it's also because of a relatively weak or fissiparious consciousness of national identity. Elsewhere, projects of post-colonial state building typically leave little space for consideration of minority or oppositional narratives, and not to mention those of women, like the former comfort women, whose experiences complicate or challenge conservative patriarchal notions of feminine purity and honour. 
Understanding whose experiences, practices or cultures are recognized or valued and why requires understanding the political context in these societies, the space or the lack of it for the operation of some sort of autonomous civil society, as well as understanding the nation building agenda of the state. In our next episode on vectors of intangible cultural heritage, we look at the role of education and language in shaping that agenda and the ways this shapes and constrains ideas about what deserves to be preserved or celebrated as heritage. As we discussed in the first episode of this podcast series, tradition is invoked as a mantra by all regimes in Southeast Asia today. Even those that maintain a notional allegiance to Marxism. Traditions supplies the focal point of unifying national ideologies, which are often portrayed as threatened by forces of globalization or domestic subversion. Governments seek to establish their legitimacy as guardians of a national tradition, typically portrayed as some sort of unique and sacrosanct essence. And they use various media especially schooling, to propagate this authorised version, while encouraging or pressuring civil society actors to tap into this discourse. But UNESCO, in its work on intangible cultural heritage, has adopted a rather different focus. So in episode one, we heard from Moe Chiba of UNESCO Jakarta, who explained that, especially in societies affected by conflict, UNESCO has sought to focus on the experience, knowledge and skills of people or of civil society, and not just on justificatory narratives promoted by states. In any society, though, collective experience or culture are typically mediated very powerfully by the state. And when it comes to the public representation of culture, in Southeast Asia, it can be especially hard to escape the state. In episode two, we discussed how the standard approach to intangible cultural heritage across the region tends to be rather static and museumified. Tradition, as defined by state actors and embodied in school curricula, is often pretty dead. A museum artifact to be treasured and preserved rather than a living, evolving practice constantly reshaped by successive generations. So what then gets celebrated and preserved and taught as tradition? And what is omitted or erased and who decides? And how do these patterns of inclusion and erasure reflect legacies of conflict and stoke ongoing tension and conflict within the societies of Southeast Asia? These are very big questions which get to the heart of what this whole podcast series is all about. When we discuss intangible cultural heritage, we are essentially discussing forms of tradition, especially in this series, tradition with a small t, as a living, evolving feature of lived reality, rather than just as a static, museumified, state-defined artifact.
this episode, though, I want to look at how tradition or intangible cultural heritage, however we define it, is transmitted down the generations and how that process can transform or some might say distort this heritage. In particular, I focus on education as a vector of intangible cultural heritage as tradition. And I look at how education and especially formal schooling sanctions and preserves or excludes and marginalizes particular cultures or identities. There are numerous ways in which education and schooling in particular serves as a vector of tradition. In previous episodes, we've touched on issues of religion and on historical narratives as these relate to intangible cultural heritage. But here I want to focus especially on the role of language and its function as a sort of superordinate form of intangible cultural heritage. Religious traditions and identities rooted in particular historical narratives tend to be associated intimately with particular languages. In India, for example, today we see Hindu nationalist leaders seeking to delegitimate or marginalize the country's Muslim heritage in part through undermining the status of the language in which that heritage is embedded, Urdu. And in China, the communist regime's drive to eradicate a distinctive Uyghur Muslim identity has involved a draconian campaign of forcible re-education that penalizes Uyghurs for speaking their own language and compels them to learn Mandarin Chinese. In the countries of Southeast Asia, with their often complex ethnic, cultural and religious makeup, the politics of language in education have been intertwined with the legacies of colonialism and with projects of post-colonial state formation. In Vietnam and Burma, elites from the dominant ethnicity within both pre-colonial empires and post-colonial nation states have long practiced their own forms of colonialism in relation to minority populations on the periphery of their states. In cases such as those of the Karen or the Rohingya in Burma, the delegitimization of minority culture, heritage and identity has been implicated in a descent into bloody and persistent inter-ethnic conflict. In Malaysia, by contrast, independence came in the early 1960s with idealistic talk of constructing a tolerant, multicultural nation state that would embrace the country's sizable Chinese and Tamil minorities. For these communities, education and language have been key tests of the commitment of the dominant Malays to that vision of multicultural tolerance. But as Dr. Helen Ting of the University Pelangsan, Malaysia notes, commitments made at independence to respect and preserve the distinct educational institutions of Chinese Malaysians were soon thrown into doubt. There was this tension between, you know, the Malay-led uh, federal government with the more radical Malay factions, which wants to push for faster and, you know, um, more stringent way of implementing uh, Malay language in the education system and so forth. Uh, it's, of course, also linked to social mobility yeah? because with the language, uh, many things comes with it. So uh, after the riot in 1969, um, I think the government sort of uh, giving to this more um, assertive type of ethno-nationalism 
But uh, there is, a, of course, a lot of difficulties with a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious society. And that's where the conflict arises. I think that if the government had kept to the original sort of uh, agreement, uh, because, uh, you know, at independence, Tamil and Chinese schools were uh, included legally into the national system. And if they, they have proceeded accordingly and treat all the schools fairly, uh, I believe the conflict would have been neutralized. And initially, even, uh, there was a lot of people also going to the English school. Yeah, there were four, four mediums of instruction, but uh, the, 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 the government abolished that and keeping to Malay schools, but they were proceeding too fast. So uh, the, 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 the quality suffers. And when the quality suffers, you know what happened. Because uh, education is seen as a tool of social mobility. Then, you know, uh, it was not successful. But in, uh, after the riot, 1969, Malaysia implemented the so-called uh, race-based affirmative action which uh, openly favours Malays. The, the, the non-Malays have the impression that the social mobility in the public sector is blocked because uh, the state is pro-Malay. So in that sense, it encouraged indirectly also the non-Malays to sort of uh, back away. Yeah, so, so it's a very complex interaction of different social dynamics. According to Dr. Ting, a drift from around the 1980s towards an increasingly authoritarian mode of politics associated with a vision of the ethnic Malay majority as the only true Malaysians and of Islam as the essence of Malay identity has further narrowed the scope of tolerance or respect for alternative ways of being Malaysian. I think the school culture is also influenced by the larger political culture. Um, we have been under so-called quite conservative authoritarian political culture. So uh, it does not encourage uh, respect in the sense that, you know, um, you just impose the, the traditional disciplinary approach to education. And that does not allow for sometimes uh, diversity and respect for differences. It is sometimes transmitted into lack of sensitivity towards other culture uh, by individual principles. I don't think it is a policy of the government, but uh, some of the principles, uh, you know, are involved in controversies in terms of, you know, making certain statements or even, you know, during the 
Ramadan time to you know ask the non-Muslim students to eat inappropriate um oh, basically to conform to the yeah prescriptions of of Ramadan yes correct and uh so that was a display of insensitivity towards uh, non-Muslims from time to time but in the Southeast Asian context the situation of Malaysia's ethnic minorities remains relatively benign Chinese and Tamil Malaysians basically retain access to state-funded Mandarin or Tamil medium primary schooling, respectively. And those schools continue to play a crucial role in preserving and transmitting the distinctive languages, heritage and traditions of those communities. At the same time, the linguistic and educational landscape in Malaysia is further complicated by the powerful legacy of the former colonial language, English. For a multicultural and multilingual post-colonial state, the colonizer's language can serve as a more widely acceptable lingua franca than languages associated with any particular ethnic group. But there is also the fear that English, by virtue of its perceived value as a tool of global communication and a marker of elite status, may tend to overwhelm local or indigenous languages threatening the survival of the distinctive traditions associated with them. So we find a profound ambivalence regarding the status of English to be a feature of the post-colonial educational politics of Malaysia or the Philippines uh, and of other Southeast Asian nations. A society that manifests these tensions in especially stark form is East Timor where the colonial language wasn't English, but Portuguese. That was Timorese independence leader Shanana Guzmao speaking in Portuguese on a cassette smuggled out of occupied East Timor in 1983. The Timorese case is further complicated by the way in which the legacy of Portuguese colonialism came to be refracted through the experience of a quarter of a century of Indonesian occupation. That contributed to a fierce attachment by many leaders of the Timorese independence movement to the Portuguese legacy as both a symbol of Timorese distinctiveness from Indonesia and a crucial asset for post-independence nation building. I discussed the Timorese case with Kirsty Sword Guzmao, who was the first chair of independent East Timor's 
National Commission for UNESCO. Yeah, so look, you're certainly right in saying that in the early years after independence, there was very much a feeling that um, uh, the Portuguese language, whilst sharing an equal status in the constitution with Tetum, that it was the language of, of learning and of science and that it needed to be made a priority in teaching and learning and in, in the curriculum um, at all at all levels, not just sort of um, at, uh, you know, higher education level, but starting even, you know, with what's called basic education. So, um, you know, years one to nine. So, um, you know, I guess I guess that's a legacy of, of colonialism. You don't kind of get through 500 years of um, <laughs> Portuguese colonisation without there being, um, you know, a lasting lasting impact of that in terms of, um, you know, the psyche, the, 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 the undermining of belief in your own culture and in the value of your own culture and, and languages. The elevated status accorded to the Portuguese language by many Timorese elites since independence is ironic in view of the rather superficial penetration of Portuguese language and culture within Timorese society during the centuries of colonial rule. Kirsty Sword-Guzmão reflects on how this re-remembering of the Portuguese legacy has come about and what it implies for the construction or reconstruction of Timorese heritage and identity in the post-independence era. You know, the legacy of decades of conflict and centuries of colonialism has certainly left deep marks on the fabric of Timorese society and, and the psyche of the people. Um, so you might know that the, the period of Portuguese um, colonial domination was uh, characterised or described by some um, uh, writers at the time as, uh, as one of benign neglect. So development in the sense of the provision of public services such as, you know, universal education and healthcare was a privilege of the Timorese elite of assimilados, they were called, who were those who assumed roles within the colonial administration as public servants or officers in the Portuguese armed forces. Um, so reje rejection of traditional cultural practices, um, languages and animist belief systems in favour of Catholicism and um adoption of the Portuguese language was a mark of, of civilization. So the 24 years of Indonesian rule introduced, you know, arguably um, a, um, an improved rollout of public services in the form of, you know, an education system that was available to, to all. Um, but with, of course, the underlying agenda of turning ordinary East Timorese into obedient subjects of... Um, the dictatorial regime of President Suharto. So ironically, whilst this agenda included, um, you know, obliterating Timorese identity in the form of, you know, Indigenous languages and cultural heritage, um, you know, Indonesia's brutal subjugation of the territory united the people in their affirmation of their unique identity and their quest for their realisation of, you know, the right to political self-determination and and also turn them all into catholics right 
Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. You know, because of that sort of very abrupt end to the Portuguese colonial administration and the brutality uh, of the of the Indonesian occupation, there was kind of this nostalgic feeling for the past. You know, even though at the time of you know the declaration of the unilateral declaration of independence in November 1975 that sense of kind of longing for the past emerged you know, as a, in, in response to the horrific atrocities that were committed by the Indonesians. And so I guess, you know, the memories were, were, were of the benign, <laughs> the benign nature and they forgot that there was also a lot of neglect. And um, so I think that that has kind of carried over to some extent into the post-independence period that, that um well, it certainly had a lot to do with the adoption of Portuguese as an official language alongside Tetum. I mean, thank goodness Tetum, which is one of um, the most important of the 17 local Indigenous languages of Timor, thankfully it was adopted as a co-official language alongside um, Portuguese. Um, and, look, personally I have no issues with the adoption of Portuguese. It's, it is a, a language that resonates historically and... Um, you know, culturally uh, with with the people. I'm not one of those who argues that, you know, they should have adopted English, you know, which I hear all the time from Australians um, because you know, language, language is not just about what's utilitarian and what's practical, you know, for advancing your economic interests. It is about identity. And um, I think Portuguese does resonate in terms of Timorese's identity but what I what I what I have found very disturbing in recent times is that those who are um, actively involved in pushing Portugal's development agenda um, don't see any value in actually promoting uh, local languages in the education system. They very very in a very blinkered way see that it's a case of Portuguese or or nothing. Interesting. Well, it's, it's yes. So it's still this. There still is apparent, evidently, a, a sort of sense that Portuguese is a vehicle for a civilizing mission. Yes. Yeah. And it's that you know, kind of, in the in the minds of many Timorese, not just of Portuguese um, development <laughs> officials, but that you know, those local local languages are associated with with the past, with with animism. Um, and they run counter to a modernising agenda, which um, actually is not the case at all. It's a very simplistic view and, um, you know, anyone that, that has worked in education and particularly in language policy will know that um, kids need a solid foundation in their first language and um, Portuguese is patently not a first language for anything more than about 20 to 25 percent of Timorese. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting to hear the sort of nuanced position on on language that you're putting forward because, yeah, as you say, Portuguese is is part of Timorese heritage for better or for worse, and this kind of relates to the 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 the, the discourse that you often hear around heritage. And culture of authenticity. So, what is authentically Timorese? You know, where where is authenticity when we talk about Timorese culture? Or do you even think that the concept of authenticity is 
useful or valid in this kind of discussion. There's a very, very clear urban and rural divide in in Timor. So a lot of um, urban Timorese would probably not identify very closely with a lot of um, traditional cultural practices, you know, around uh, original sacred houses and the very important role that they play in traditional societies, even even today, in terms of, um, you know, building social cohesion and, um, you know, those houses uh, are, are the glue of traditional sort of clan-based communities and many of them were destroyed during the period of Indonesian um, rule. And, and their rebuilding in the post-independence period has really helped to restore the social fabric and um, and social cohesion. And I think it's really, you know, it's a testament to the resilience of Timorese culture and identity that um, ritual practices relating to the building of the house structures um, and marriage alliances and natural resource management and healing have all persisted and they are still still practiced widely widely today. So the case of East Timor shows how legacies of conflict, in this case the Indonesian invasion and occupation, can prompt reassessment of earlier cultural legacies or a reimagining or invention of tradition. Here this has involved a selective appropriation of aspects of Portuguese heritage and in particular the Portuguese language. And who is to say that on one level this doesn't constitute an authentic expression of Timoreseness? But at the same time, as Kirsty Sword Guzmao explains, the embrace of Portuguese potentially threatens the survival of indigenous languages and the traditions and practices associated with those. One feature of the Timorese case involves the role of class or level of education in shaping different perspectives on culture, heritage, and language on the part of elites on the one hand and many ordinary citizens on the other. This phenomenon, often seen in former colonial societies, can have serious implications for the shared identity that is essential for underpinning societal cohesion. Now, one nation in Southeast Asia exemplifies both a chronic lack of social cohesion and an embrace by the elite of the cultural legacies of colonialism in language and in much else. This is the Philippines. Now for East Timor, the embrace of Portuguese language and Catholic religion as key elements of Timorese identity came relatively late and also came as a response to conflict and invasion. But in the Philippines, it is the relative absence of conflict or the very smoothness of the transition from colonial rule in the late 1940s that has left power in the hands of a landowning elite that was always deeply invested in the colonial dispensation. For many in this privileged Anglophone elite, America, the former colonial power, seems culturally closer or more congenial than the indigenous cultures and languages of the Philippines itself. The collaborationist antecedents of the landowning elites give them a vested interest in suppressing memories of particular aspects of Filipino 
history. For example, resistance to Japanese occupation during World War II or revolution or armed struggle at other points in the national past. At the same time, in directing the aspirations of young Filipinos outwards, overseas, this elite is able, to some extent, to direct popular attention away from any focus on societal dysfunction and inequality within the Philippines itself, and the tensions and violent conflict that have stemmed from those problems. Here, labor migration, enabled by mass education in the English language, is crucial, as Mark Macker of the University of Central Luzon explains. Yeah, well, that's coming from the fact that, you know, we are um, major, we are the, we're still, I think, the number one, or especially in, the, uh, in this part of Asia, the number one labor exporting country in the world. So I think that it, that, that kind of narrative began when we embraced uh, migration as a way of life. Uh, when the state started, you know, um, building on uh, labor export as, you know, a key plank of our development strategy. And there is one textbook, history textbook, that was very explicit on that, on that matter and even portrayed Filipinos, Ed, I remember, as ideal citizens of the world because we can easily get acculturated, you know, we, we, we are law-abiding when we get to this country. But there's another angle to that. There's one book that says that since we are a Christian nation, the only Christian nation in Asia, we're also the missionaries to the world, you know, so we bring good news. Uh, and, and that's why Filipinos are peace-loving. So in the Philippines, legacies of colonial oppression, notably Catholicism and the English language, have come to be celebrated as core components of a uniquely globalist national identity, even as the social fabric back home continues to fray. As we see across Southeast Asia, Drawing any stark dichotomy between colonial legacies and indigenous culture and dismissing anything tainted by colonialism as intrinsically inauthentic is a flawed and impossible exercise. All cultures change and mix and evolve and the appropriation or incorporation of colonial legacies, including the languages of the colonizers, into a diverse post-colonial heritage landscape is natural and inevitable. But it's also important to be critically aware of whose interests are served by maintaining or appropriating colonial legacies, whose interests may be threatened, and where power lies in this process. Otherwise, the balance that's necessary to ensuring that indigenous cultures are not overwhelmed or swamped either by colonial legacies or by majoritarian nation-building projects, will be lost. And the Philippines stands, perhaps, as a warning of what may happen when the attempt to strike such a balance is abandoned by elites who identify more with the colonizers, their language and their culture, than they do with their own compatriots. To conclude, here is the Filipino singer Jed Madela with Superhero, 
a song used by the authorities in the Philippines to celebrate Migrant Workers' Day, a day set aside to celebrate the contribution to the country of migrant workers. If I could be a superhero, I wonder which I'd be. What if I could be like Spider-Man, spinning webs, climbing walls, and saving man? If I could be a superhero, I wonder which I'd be. of magic dust for sale I would be the first to order it by mail I'd cross the sea myself by sail I'd lay my hands for a broken rail I know there is more to just paying me I know deep inside there is more to me Cause I'm more than a superhero More than a superhero 